Welcome to the Divine Self Secret Garden Podcast. On today's episode, David Yusefia and I am your host, Megan. Secret Garden. I have my very good friend David Yusefia joining us here in the garden to talk about navigating the legal system with a narcissist. This is such a huge topic. He's here to talk about the different kinds of courts um, and um, to talk about tools and tips to beginning to file a lawsuit and even just going through the criminal process um, with a narcissist. David graduated from Loyola Law School where he was a staff writer and editor of the Entertainment Law Journal. Previous to law school, he completed his undergraduate studies in international finance at the University of Southern California. Prior to entering private practice, David was a judicial extern for the Honorable James and Eidman U.S. District Court and clerked for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and U.S. Attorney's Office. David practices all throughout California and specializes in complex business, tort, real estate, employment, criminal, and personal injury litigation. Welcome to the garden today, David. All right. Welcome, David Yusefia. David is an attorney out of California and has some awesome conversations here for us. So welcome. Thank you very much, Megan. Glad to be here. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast from the beginning, and I think it's amazing. Thanks. Um, Before we start, let me just say uh, two things. First of all, what we're to or talk about right now is not legal advice. We're just going to be talking about general legal terms and function of the legal system. If you do have an issue, please go find a local attorney or go to your local bar associations, which just about all of them have legal referral services and talk to an attorney. Number two, I'm going to try to talk as broad as I can about the concepts of law But some of what I'm going to talk to you is going to be specific in California. So if you live in other states, this may not apply to you. That's fantastic. Yes, every state is different. And I know just from living in different states and getting getting quite familiar with the legal system, as you know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, and I know it's different. It's different everywhere. So um, that's definitely good. I think that the majority of my listeners, I want to start just... I think they're afraid to get a lawyer. I kind of want to start there. I think when people that are in abusive relationships, well, first of all, their abuser convinces them that if they get, if they go and contact a lawyer, they're going to go nowhere. I think that that the abuser tries to suppress the victim. And then second, I, I just think that they're afraid to go through the legal process because it's quite intimidating and finding a good attorney is, is, is quite the task. Yeah, you know, uh, us attorneys have not done a really good job, especially in this area of law, to really reach out to the victims, bring them in, talk about the process. And and when I say us attorneys, I mean civil attorneys as well as prosecutors. Well, there are specialized 
prosecution divisions within city attorney's offices now and district attorney's offices, still I think we could do a better job of explaining how the system works to everybody. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, just from volunteering in New York State and seeing multiple cases and then obviously going through my own case um, was it's quite the experience, you know, and I actually had a really good, I don't want to say good experience, who has a good experience going through the criminal system, but um, a good, I had a good attorney who kind of explained the process step by step to me. And I know that that is not always the case, um, you know, but let's start there. So what is the difference between criminal court and civil court? Okay. So in a civil court, you are in charge. So in the context of a domestic relationship, let's say one spouse physically assaults the other spouse, you as the victim can sue the other spouse for assault, battery, and other torts. To do that, you hire a private attorney, and depending on what your deal is with the attorney, whether it's hourly, whether it's contingency, whether it's a mix of, mix of both, you go ahead in the system and you're in charge. You can drop the case at any time. You can settle it at any time. You can do whatever you want to do with the case. In a context of a criminal case, the crime is done against, and the, you know, if, if you notice in court, at least in California, it's so-and-so versus the people of California or people, actually it's the reverse, right? People of California versus so-and-so. So uh, the crime is done against the people and the victim has some input, but in a lot of places, the victim does not get a lot of choices, whether to even file charges or charges are dropped or how they're, char they're charged or, you know, ultimately what happens. So in a criminal context, you're, at, you're kind of at the mercy of the police, which gathers the information, and then the police officer decides who to give the case to. Sometimes it's the city attorney who does only misdemeanors, and sometimes it's the district attorney who does felonies. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of confusion with this. Um, so many people say, oh, why don't you just drop the charges against your abuser? So if you if you call, you get into a domestic, you have a domestic violence situation, you pick up the phone, you call 911. You're right. You're at the mercy of the of the cops um, and my case included. Um, you, you, you know, I, I cried and was like, oh, don't arrest him. I, I just want him to stop drinking. And she's like, well, you can ask the district attorney and talk to her about that. But at that point, it was too, it had gone so far as the district attorney still chose to bring charges. And I didn't have any say. You're just a witness in the case. You just you become a witness. And I think so many people don't understand this concept that it's not you, the victim versus him, but it's the state versus him. And you just become a witness. But you're the key witness and really kind of the one on trial, right? They're the one telling you're, you're telling your story. They're trying to discredit everything that you're saying. So it becomes very confusing. And so many people, I don't think understand this concept. Yeah. It's I've seen it many times in criminal court when, you know, spouses or boyfriends and girlfriends have issues and the police is called and the police decides to, to file, to take a report and pass it off to the prosecutor who decides to file charges. Then the victim goes up to court and says, no, I don't want charges filed or we're okay now or it was a misunderstanding. And a lot of times the prosecutor is like, that's nice, but we're still going to go forward with this. Yes. 
Yes, I, um, oh. that was definitely, sorry, I have my crazy dog in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the days of COVID. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I think that, that, that happened in my case. And, and, and people have said to me, why don't you just drop, drop the case? And I was like, this isn't my, I can't, there's, I don't have the liberty to do so. Once the police gives the police report to the prosecutor, it's out of your hand. Now, when the police is investigating, you may have a little bit of a window there to affect the case, but once it's out of the police officer's hand, it's out of your hands, whether fortunately or unfortunately. And I think, you know, sometimes it's fortunately because I have seen a lot of people who come to court who have been legitimately abused for whatever reason, whether they're afraid of, you know, the perpetrator getting even more angry or more violent or more abusive, backing out, or they're uh, afraid of, you know, collateral consequences from the family, um, changing their minds and just saying, I don't want to say anything. I don't want this case to go forward. Yeah. And I kind of think it is, it is fortunately, I think once you kind of get through and you actually get validated by the court system, right? So an attorney says, you know what, I'm actually going to take this. I'm going to prosecute this. This is really bad. And this happened to you. Um, and, but, but you also have to go through the criminal process, which can be quite triggering and devastating, I think for the victim, you know, you have to relive it and talk about it a lot through the process. Yeah. From what I've seen, you know, the problem is, the victim goes in the system and for most victims, they're not criminals. So they're not familiar with the system. And so they come in and, you know, it's almost like you need like a little self-help guide. You go in court, what's going to happen? Do you need to show up to court? Why is the case continuing? Because criminal cases just get continued all the time, whether the prosecutor and the defense attorney need to speak, whether defense attorney is buying time, whether stuff happens. And so I've seen victims just be very frustrated with the overall process because they feel it's out of their hand and they don't have input. And and that all kind of comes from not knowing how the system works. Yes. Yes. And I don't think that that is explained very well to victims at all. No, it, it's really not. I mean, you're, you're a victim. Police officer gets, um, you know, comes in. Police is called, for example, and Sometimes a person is arrested on the spot. Sometimes a person is, you know, not arrested. But in either case, charges are filed. And sometimes the victim doesn't even know charges are being filed until the charges are filed and the perpetrator gets something in the mail or an arrest warrant is issued. And then it's like, uh, what's going on? How did all this happen? Yes, yes. Um, and that goes back to my, you know, people are saying, oh, you should just drop the charges. I'm like, the victim doesn't. Now, I know in some states there's victims, and I, this might be in all states, I don't know, but there's victims laws, right, where the victim kid is consulted during the case. And, and you know, when there's a plea deal, they run it by the victim, but really it's still up to the prosecutor. So they try to make you feel like you're involved. <laughs> but... I don't know if, if I felt involved in mine, you know, it's, it's, but I know that they did call and ask me if I wanted, you know, and kind of what my thoughts were and that I could speak to the judge and do a victim impact statement. And that possibly could change the course of the plea deal, but it really, really didn't do much. Usually. And there is a specific sentence that's kind of decided for a first time offender or a second time offender. So for example, in Los Angeles County, the first time offender, for a misdemeanor 
domestic abuse charge, whether it's spousal battery, regular battery, or something like that, um, is going to do 52 weeks of domestic violence classes and, you know, be three years of summary probation. Um, so now it's, you know, they're going to, there's a lot that you can do to change that because it's almost, it's kind of like a DUI charge. It's kind of standard across the county. And so, um, you can come in and give your statement at sentencing, but it's not going to necessarily change the sentence unless it's an egregious case. And in which case, what I recommend to victims is take notes, your conversations with the prosecutor, follow up, fax him or her, email him or her. Really, you got it's your case. And yes, you don't get to decide what happens, but you can you can't affect the outcome by being on top of it. Yes. Yes, I um, I was very clear on what evidence I had throughout the course of the relationship, and just was very clear on on everything, and um, gave them everything in a timely manner, so they ha- they were able to kind of build that case. And so that goes back go, that goes to my next question of what can people do to help build the case when they finally get ready to call the police? Because as you know, in domestic violence, this is kind of a repetitive thing and it takes a while for victims to call the police. Like what what do you recommend there? The first and most important thing you can do is create a diary. And I don't mean, you know, today I went to the, you know, I did this, I had this. I mean, in terms of your, your interactions with the perpetrator, create a diary of at this day, at this time, this happened and this happened. And, what, and you got to start kind of writing down everything so you show the pattern. Because when you go to a police and sometimes talk about a one-off instance, they may just be like, whatever, you got mad or he had a bad day. But if you can show a pattern, then it's harder for them to excuse it. Then number two is once you turn in the information to the police or let's just say something happens at home and the police is called and whether he or she's arrested and taken away or they just take a police report, follow up, follow up, follow up. That police report is going to be assigned to a detective. Find out who's a detective who has it. Follow up with him or her in writing. Dear so-and-so, I'm calling uh, today or I'm emailing you today or I'm faxing you today to find out what's going on with my case. Dear so-and-so, it's been a week. I haven't heard anything. What's going on with my case? You need to stay on top of them. And at some point, they're going to say, okay, I handed off everything to the prosecutor. Find out who they give it to. You know, in again, in California, we have a two-step system that the city attorneys, in most places, prosecute misdemeanors and uh, district attorneys prosecute felonies. So did you give it to the DA or did you give it to the city attorney? And if it, you know, depending on who they gave it to and depending on the jurisdiction, a lot of jurisdictions now have domestic violence uh, prosecutorial units. Find out how to get in touch with the unit. Follow up on them. Hey, I know you got this from detective so-and-so. Here's a report number. What's going on with this case? I would like to talk to you before you file charges. Now, doesn't mean anyone will listen to you. But there's a good chance that if you're on top of this and you start building a paper file, they have no choice but to start listening to you. Yes. Yes. And as an advocate um, that did this in the emergency room, you know, we did a lot of documentation in the hospital, even though they weren't going to call the police maybe right that night or 
we're going to wait until the next defense, but we documented in the hospital. So keeping your medical records, knowing, taking pictures of bruises and having all of that, all your email chains, your text messages, don't delete anything, but you also have to keep yourself safe. That's me being the advocate of, you know, the, the, I know that the perpetrators a lot of times will want to look at your emails, want to look at your text messages. So I saved it all on a Google drive that was in a different Gmail account than what my actual Gmail, my one that I used and, and just kept all of my documents hidden in this Google drive. So when the time came, I had all the email exchanges. I had screenshots of text messages. I had pictures of bruising and everything. So I found that that helped a lot. Yeah, I was going to say pictures are key. If there's any bruising, if there are any cuts, if there are any scrapes, anything that there is, pictures are great. Now, re remember, most of your cell phones now time and date pictures when you when you took them. Um, also, uh, some f the phones have a GPS function that also records where you took the picture. So make sure you also have that turned on for those pictures anyway, at least. Yeah, and I know that, um, and I know that this isn't legal in California. But it, I, I've talked about this many times on my on the podcast, and it was legal in the state that I was in. Um, but recording conversations, as long as you're a participant of the conversation, you can't record a conversation. Is that correct? I don't. I know it's not legal in California, regardless. But from my understanding, I had to at least be a participant of the conversation and was able to record it, and it became serious evidence in my case. So. States are different. There are differing laws. In certain states, as long as you're one of the parties to the conversation, you can record it. You don't need the consent of the other party. In California, you need the consent of the other party. However, and this is, I, I believe it's a misdemeanor in California recording um, with without someone's permission. If you are threatened or if there's something going on, and, you, and you're afraid for your life, um, and this is not legal advice to anybody, so please, please don't come to me and send David to do this. Your life comes first, and I'll leave it as that. Okay, that's the, that is um, good, good advice. But um, yeah, and I, I don't think many states do allow it. I think I was doing research on this, and I think it was like eight or nine states that actually allow recording, and, and you can use it as evidence. Yeah, in California, there is one caveat to this, which is if you have a restraining order against somebody, generally restraining orders allow you to record them without their permission. So once you do get a restraining order against someone, you're free to record them as much as you want. Pre-restraining order, it's not legal, but um, I have not heard of anybody being prosecuted for recording someone else who is uh, being abusive to them either. What's the, is there a difference between a restraining order and a protection order? Or is it the same thing? It's the same thing. It's yeah, okay. the same thing. Now, now there are different levels to a restraining order uh, or a protection order, but in California anyway, we call them restraining orders. Okay. Yeah. I, um, and how do you go about getting a restraining order? That's a question I actually get all the time. Um, for, for me, it automatically went into place once the criminal case started and it kind of, they let me know almost immediately that there would be a protection order in place. But I was like, I don't know how you'd go and get a restraining order. So before I go there, let me mention one other type of court that's um, like criminal and civil, and that's family courts. Now, family courts is generally when we do divorce, adoptions, uh, child custody, 
child lineage type questions. You can get a restraining order in pretty much all three courts. The process is a little bit different though. So in a civil court, if you are in a relationship with someone or generally what happens is you end a relationship with somebody and it's on a bad note and let's just say this person is stalking you. Um, you you go in, you file the paperwork for a restraining order and you get what we call a civil restraining order. Um, they are in, at least in California, most major courthouses now have sections that are devoted to helping people get restraining orders. So there's one in downtown Los Angeles, there's one in Santa Monica in Los Angeles County. Other, other big counties have it. Usually at a minimum, it's at the central courthouse. So where are your downtown courthouses for your county? Um, but it's a, it's a, the forms are very simple. The forms are published in California. It's effectively check the box and tell us what happened. And you file it, you, you get a hearing date, you have to uh, serve the other party with it before the hearing date, you have a hearing in front of a court. That's the civil restraining order. In criminal court, if charges are filed against your perpetrator, what happens just about every time is two things. One is the police can apply and get a restraining order. If the police doesn't do it, then in the first hearing in the criminal case, there's always a restraining order issued. Now, I'll talk in one second about the different types of restraining orders in a criminal case. But um, in a, and then you also have family court. Family court usually happens is if you're in a divorce and as part of the divorce, there is some interaction between the parties that's not pleasant um, or violent. Really. In divorce, there's no such yeah. thing as pleasant interaction. <laughs> So if there's a violent, if there's a violent uh, interaction between two people, um, what happens is you can apply to the family law court for a restraining order as well. Um, so there are multiple ways of doing it. If, for example, you are with someone and, and you know charges are going to be filed and you just don't want to wait till charges are filed to get a restraining order, you can run to civil court and ask for a restraining order. Okay, that's good to know. I actually never knew that that process. And um, I, I get this question all the time of people saying like, hey, or they're afraid to go file a restraining order and upset their abuser. But I'm like, that's kind of the first step too. if you're not going to call the police. Like, I think that's a huge step because it kind of drives a wedge between you, you know, and and the perpetrator. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, so let me tell you about restraining orders for one second, if I may, while, while we're yep, talking about it. Of course. So... Um, in a, in a civil context, when you go to civil court, ask for a restraining order, there's generally a separate court that hears these restraining orders all day. You're going to get a restraining order against somebody, and it's generally stay away from so-and-so for, for you know, X amount of time, for X, X distance, you know, let's just say 100 yards, 100 feet, whatever the number is. And it's for a period of time, three years, five years. And after that period of time, you can go to the court and ask the court to renew it if you have good cause to renew it, let's just say. I'm still worried about this guy or this guy's still around. In a criminal court, when you get a restraining order at the beginning of a case, you get a little bit of flexibility in cr criminal court because sometimes after the event, the people are together. They're still living together. And they re reconcile. So you have multiple levels. So you, you can get a level, we'll call it a level one restraining order, which is basically 
you have to be nice to the victim. You know, we recognize that you live together, but you can't act up anymore. Or sometimes you get a, you know, a, a level two restraining order, which says, all right, you can't come within, you know, a hundred yards of the victim. So the, the differences in the restraining order system, uh, in the levels of the restraining orders. And finally, the other thing about restraining orders is you need to make sure that the police has a copy of it. So some courts will transmit electronically to the police database. Some courts, you got to take it to your local police or sheriff and have them enter it into the system because if that person acts up, if they're following you again, if they're you know acting violently or threatening you again, you want to be able to have the police arrest him or her. Yes. Yes. I didn't know there was different levels. I pretty much was told there was going to be a protection order and that if he came anywhere near me, that would be serious consequences for him. <laughs> so I don't know if they did that on purpose and just try to tell me, no, like, and she pretty much was like, you need a wedge driven between the two of you. Well, you know, your case is, is a little bit different because after the event, you guys weren't living together anymore, right? No, so I left. Yeah. So, but you know, there are cases, I've seen this happen multiple times where, you know, victim and perpetrator show up to court hand in hand for the perpetrator's, you know, first court date. And, you know, the judge says, well, you know, restraining or the prosecutor says, we need a restraining order. And as the judge is about to start, defense attorney jumps up and says, judge, these guys still live together. They've worked out these issues. So then you say, all right, well, we don't want to keep them apart. But Mr. or Mrs. Perpetrator, you can't act up anymore. And if you, you know, do X, Y, and Z, we're going to have you arrested. Domestic violence is so complex. <laughs> it's well, so it, complex. It is, it, it is because it's also, it involves such strong feelings, right? I mean, you love somebody or you hate somebody or you go up and down between love and hate sometimes. So as feelings are involved and it's not like a contract case. Someone didn't pay me for goods. You know, that's a little bit more cut and dry. This is humans and feelings. And sometimes there's just a lot of underlying issues. And so it's complex. It is complex. Um, yes, I, I, I see that. And just being a volunteer in, in the hospital, there were so many cases where um, so there were some serious, you know, assaults on on some people, and they would turn around and run right back to their abuser. And it just takes a while for a victim to finally get the courage or the strength to say, you know what, I've had enough. I think it's gonna, it's time to call the police or time to leave. But um, and a lot of times I've seen them call the police, and then uh, like two weeks later they're back. And you're right, the criminal the criminal court is moving forward with the charges, but they're still living together and still in this relationship. Um, one thing I want to talk about when you're talking about civil court, and I think is really important as well, too, is you mentioned contingency. And I think a lot of people are afraid to get an attorney because of the cost of an attorney. But you can get an attorney on a contingent basis. Do you want to explain that a little bit as well? Of course. So generally, when you retain an attorney, there's three ways of doing it. One is a flat fee. You go to him or her and say, I'm going to pay you X dollars for the pendency of the case. I don't care what happens. You take a risk of doing too much work and I take you know, a risk of paying you for too little work. You agree on a number and you move on. The other way of doing it is hourly. So you say, I'm going to pay you for your time. I'm going to pay you X dollars an hour for the work that you're doing. 
plus your out-of-pocket expenses, and you move on. Another way is to do it in a contingency. So you say, I'm going to pay you, but you get paid on a percentage of the recovery. So if, for example, someone beats you up really badly and you break a bone and you go to the hospital and you have doctor bills and you have all, you know, obviously psychology bills and everything, you sue the perpetrator for, an, uh, for your bills in addition to your uh, pain and suffering that they caused on you. And in that case, you may be able to have an attorney who would take the case, who would take it on a contingency. So you have nothing out of pocket until there's a recovery on the case. That's, um, I think that's great because a lot of people are afraid and think, oh, I, I don't want to sue. It's going to cost a lot of money. And I'm like, no, you need to find the right attorney that will take it on a contingency basis. And not every attorney will. There's, there's a lot of attorneys that don't want to do contingency. They only want to do on an hourly basis, but there's some that will. There, there are plenty that will, and I, God, I hate to say this, but it, it's, it's almost, it, it's a function of the amount of money that's there, right? And, and I hate to say this, but, you know, it does, the work is, in some ways, is the same. And if you are seriously injured, I don't see why, and, and there won't be an attorney who won't take it on a contingency basis. Um, in addition, in California, we have Civil Code Section 1708.6 which is a separate tort that you can sue on and not just for physical abuse, but also for emotional abuse. And you can go back and get recovered for all the abuse in the relationship going back wow. to day one. So it's a pretty powerful uh, piece of legislation. A lot of even attorneys don't know about it. Frankly, I find out I found out about it by accident researching something, and uh, it's a powerful tool to have. And it's that can if your attorney knows about it, they're more likely than not to take this case on a contingency basis, because at the end of the day, it also provides for an attorney's fees of the perpetrator of the so of the of the victim. Can you file just emotional charges without physical charges in a in a civil case? Yes, you could. So you could uh, you could use that and and just file for emotional charges for emotional abuse, really. Yeah, it, it would be intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligent infliction of emotional distress, um, even for assault. And when I say assault, on the legal terms of assault, is when someone you know raises their hand and is acts like they're going to hit you, but they don't make contact with you, which is generally defined as battery. Um, you can sue for all that. Uh, under civil code 1708.6. You could also do it just under general tort law. You know, it's an assault, it's in battery, it's uh, infliction of emotional distress. 1708.6 kind of extends the statute of limitations. And then it also um, defines abuse rather broadly. So it's a great thing to have in your toolkit. And you just mentioned statute of limitations. That was going to be my next question. What is a statute of limitations? What does that mean? Okay. So statute of limitations means the time you have between an incident to when you file a lawsuit. So if someone hits you, your statute of limitations uh, is two years generally. Um. If someone, uh, what will be 
so let so let me back up. I'm sorry. So you have two years. So from the date of the incident until you file your lawsuit, you have two years to file the lawsuit. Now the next question is what if there's multiple incidents? Technically, each incident is its own actionable lawsuit. So you could, if someone, let's just say, you know, hits you three times, that's three separate lawsuits you have. Now you can combine them all into one lawsuit as three separate incidences. Or let's say that the first two are beyond two years. Then you have, um, you can do two years from the last one. Now in California, 1708.6 civil code says you've got three years from the last act to sue for all the acts. So it's really, really broad and it gives you, uh, allows a lot more information to be brought in, or I should say a lot more bad flat, bad facts to be brought, brought into a trial. And it gives you a little bit more time to kind of decide if you want to sue or not. Yeah. And there's also statute of limitations in criminal court, correct? Like it had the, the, the prosecutor has so long to actually bring charges against, against the defendant, correct? That's correct. So generally for a misdemeanor, it's a year from the last, from the incident in in a felony, it's the length of the sentence for the felony. So if it's a felony that has a maximum sentence of four years, generally the prosecutor has four years from the date of the incident to press charges. Wow. I didn't know that. That's, that's actually quite fascinating. So it's the length of the Huh. Interesting. Uh, at, at least in California. Other yeah. states may be different. So, but in California, that's the law. All right. So I think, so when I volunteered in New York City, a lot, there was a lot of talk of domestic violence being kind of figured out in family court, right? Through a divorce, through the divorce process. And, and I think that people oh. don't realize that you go through the divorce process, it's domestic violence, you kind of battle out the divorce, but you can still go through the criminal and civil process. And I think that there's a huge disconnect there that, that people don't know that you can actually go and sue for domestic violence and, and actually, you know, go and, and talk to, you know, a prosecutor and have charges brought against the other. I think people fa- tend to just stay in family court. And I see this all the time. I'm like, no, that's a, that's a crime. So in state like California that has a no fault divorce, the domestic violence that happens in the divorce is, it's kind of counted when you're, when you're figuring out the numbers and who gets how much, but technically it's not supposed to be there. I mean, there's some provisions in the law to consider it. Uh, but historically, the law has said, this is no fault. We're just going to look at the assets and divide it up. And if you guys have a problem with each other, take it somewhere else. There's, there's been some changes in the law recently. But you can file for divorce from somebody. You can file a separate civil lawsuit against that person. And you can also go to the police and or prosecutor and ask them to file charges against this perpetrator as well. So you have three avenues to pursue and none of them is mutually exclusive. Now, the one is, the one problem is sometimes, you know, attorneys tend to specialize. So if you're in family law court, if you're filing for a divorce, if this is somebody you're married to or if you have child custody issues, the family law attorney uh, may not be familiar with civil cases and not want to file that civil lawsuit. 
in which case you either ask your attorney for a referral to an attorney he or she knows or has worked with, or you need to just find your own attorney and let your family law attorney know, hey, this is what I'm going to do. We're going ahead with the divorce. We're going to go ahead with, you know, child custody issues because we were just boyfriend, girlfriend, but we had kids together. But I'm filing a, a lawsuit in civil court, and I'm also going to the police asking them to prosecute this person. What, um, and I don't know if you even know this because it's kind of a family law issue, but like, what do you recommend for people that have children and are married to an abuser? I think a lot of people are afraid of losing their children or that they're, they're going to have to share custody with a really abusive perpetrator, which I, it happens. You have any advice there? Yes. So it's, so part of, you know, that kind of goes back to taking good notes because when you're in divorce court and you're fighting for custody, those notes become key of why you need this. You need to have custody of your kids um, why, and why this person should at least be kept um, away from you during times where you're uh, exchanging kids. So I've seen in family courts where they only exchange custody at the police station, for example, because you know one spouse has issues with the other or it's just a p- potentially just a nasty divorce. So yes, you will have to share custody with your abuser. It's, it's really hard to get a court to just say, this person is just a horrible person and they can never see the kids. That's really not going to happen. But there are ways of um, minimizing the effect this person has on you and on the kids. So you can exchange kids at a police station. They could have only supervised visits, which means that the perpetrator and the kids go to some location and there's a third party who sits in the room the entire time and um, watches the interaction. So, for example, this uh, abuser doesn't say, you know, uh, mommy or daddy is bad. They're a horrible person. They're arresting me. They're making me go to jail. Um, and, you know, young kids are impressionable and they just they don't understand what went on. So there are protections. But, yes, you will have to probably share custody with this person. Yeah, it's. It's unfortunate, <laughs> but I get it. I mean, it's, it, it protects both people and I get it. And at the end of the day, it it's, protects the kids, right? And you don't want to take a parent away from children, but that also affects the amount of money that you'll get. If you have more custody, the, they'll be forced to pay more in child support, I would assume. Yes. Generally, that's the law. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know that this is very broad and and every case is very specific and unique. Um, And then also, what about like once you finally file, you know, you call and and the perpetrators are arrested, living situations. I think a lot of people are afraid. And I know there certain states have certain laws where the victim can stay in the home and the perpetrator still has to pay, but they cannot come anywhere near the home. So in um, California, when you are in a domestic relationship with somebody, whether it's a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you file for a restraining orders, within the forms, there are checkboxes for bills of the household that you need paid. Um, and those include health insurance, rent. Um, you know, you can ask the court for a lot of stuff, and the court has a lot of discretion to award this um or to actually make the other, not award, but award you and make the other person pay these bills. 
So um, at least in California, there's some discretion. I'm not sure how it is in other states, but I think, as, as they say, it doesn't hurt to ask. Worst comes to worst, the court's going to say, no, sorry, we don't have the power to do that. Yeah. Where can people go and find a good attorney? I think this is the same problem they have when, you know, when, when people, this is three things people say to me is like, I can't find a good therapist that understand, you know, domestic violence or narcissistic abuse. And they can't find an attorney that really understands how complex this can get and the cycle of abuse. And I even find divorce attorneys, if they don't have a lot of experience in domestic violence, this can be an issue. You know, the easiest answer is to say, go to your local bar association. They all have lawyer referral services. But, you know, for these kind of cases, the best thing you can do is reach out to other people who have been in this situation. There's, you know, thank God we have Facebook now. There's all these online groups you can go. Find other people in your area. Ask them, you know, who's an attorney? Why did you like this person? What did you not like about this person? And really referral is the best way of finding somebody who understands these kind of cases because they're like you said they are specialized and they do take someone who knows what's going on and who's actually had a couple of clients go through it to be able to hold your hand away because you're going to require some hand holding i mean there's no doubt about that and it's okay i think to call an attorney and then ask them hey do you have experience with this and then ask them for a referral if they don't because a lot of times they'll or they'll tell you hey i don't this isn't something i i do but i i here's three names of, of attorneys you should call um, but it's okay to to ask them that question of and kind of vet that out when you're looking for an attorney. Definitely do not be shy when you're hiring an attorney. It's the worst thing you can do to yourself. Fair question is, you know, how much is this going to cost me? Tell me about your experience in these kind of cases. Um, can I can I have some clients I can speak with? Now, that's kind of a tough question because there's some attorney client issues, but. Um, certainly most attorneys have former clients that they can refer to you and who had a good experience with the attorney who can say, yeah, I work with this guy. I had this kind of a case and he or she was very helpful with me. Yeah, that was, um, that was going to be my next question is like, what, what questions can do you ask when you're trying to hire an attorney and, and not be afraid and not be afraid to, to, to part ways with them either, even if you're in the middle of, now you are in a contract, but I think it's being very honest and being very vocal with your attorney and, and saying, Hey, I need better communication or I need this, or I'm feeling uncomfortable with that. And, and not being afraid to speak up when it, you know, through this process, you kind of have to advocate for yourself. hundred uh, percent. Do not be afraid. And, and you know, part of it is also knowing like the communication style of the attorney. So there's certain people who just text all day. I'm not a texter, I'm an emailer. And, I, and I, have to, I tell all my clients, you know, upfront from the beginning, if you need me, send me an email, I will get back to you. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night, sometimes first thing in the morning, but you'll hear from me. But I, I like to have one inbox, you know, email me everything, no problem. Other people, other attorneys are like, no, even if you send them 10 emails, they're not gonna respond, they need texts. So you need to have that, you know, that's part of the initial conversation is how do you want me to reach out to you? You know, I have a, I know one family law attorney friend of mine who the best way to reach out to him is to email his secretary. And every time you email the secretary, you get a response. You email him and it goes into this dark hole that you just 
no one ever responds to. So it's it's really it's it's up to you to find out you know cost. That's very important. Communication style, previous experience, and you know the last thing is how comfortable are you with this person because you're going to be with this person for a long time and you're going to have to be very comfortable with this person. So it's kind of like, I don't want to use dating somebody, but in a way it is, you know, you have, there has to be a level of trust. There has to be a level of comfortableness that you can tell them everything. And if you're not comfortable with them or you find out something about them that you don't like down the line, do not be shy go talk to other people and find someone that you like. Yeah, it gets very personal, especially in an abuse situation. And you have to be completely 100% honest with your attorney so they can provide, you know, put the best case forward for you. And it gets very, uh, very personal, um, you know, because there's medical records involved, right? And they're looking at therapy records. They're looking at medical records. They're looking at, you know, bruises and pictures and, and, and looking at your email exchanges and your text message exchanges. And, um, I think it's, it's being 100% transparent with your attorney because they're there to protect you. They're not going to release something over that is going to hurt you. And they pretty much will talk strategy with you before they release anything over to the other side. I always tell all my clients, send me everything. Even if you think I don't want to know about it, I need to know everything so I can make an intelligent decision about your case. Uh, if there's something that you're concerned about it when you're uh, giving it to me, then make a notation and say, hey, David, look at this. Or what do you think of this? Or this happened. Let me be the person. Let me be the filter. Let me figure out how to protect your interests instead of you being the filter and missing something that comes out from the other side. And it looks, you know, something that's very innocent can look very... Um, like you're trying to hide stay if you have something to hide when it doesn't come from you. So I rather have all the information than be surprised down the line by something. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I just think that they, the more they know, the better case, the better chance you have for them to kind of build the case and anticipate anything coming their way from the other side. Right. If there's, text message exchange between you and your ex that something might have been said that you know might now come up in a trial situation. They know that it's coming and how to kind of defend it. Yeah, I always like to say that, you know, when you're in a trial or if you're in front of the judge, if there's something that's bad for your case, I want to be able to say it first and I want to be able to frame it rather than having the other side, you know, jump up with their aha moment and say, but isn't it true that on this day at you sent a text message saying, I love you. Whereas, you know, if I have it up front, then I can be like, and yeah, my, uh, you know, your honor, my client goes, went back and forth as it's normal in a relationship. And, the, and you'll see text messages down the line that she didn't say she loved them, but that doesn't abuse what his actions were. So it, it's let the bad come from you. It's, it's, it's actually the, one of the things they teach us in trial school, which is, Find the weak points of your case and deal with them before the other side does. I think that's amazing. Um, and as an attorney, I'm sure you've pretty much either defended or fought against a narcissist in your day and or probably almost on every case that you work <laughs> you work on. Any advice? Because I, I think that it's great if you can get an attorney that is not afraid to go up against your abuser and is not afraid and understands 
you know, especially they understand an abuser and understand domestic violence, there's a chance that they're very good at maneuvering through someone with a personality disorder and being the buffer between the two of you. And because they just don't get as intimidated as the victim does and, and get, you know, as so, in, emotionally involved. So I have a theory that is has been through probably 95 to 100% of the case. And I always say people get an attorney that's an extension of themselves. So if it's somebody who's just very obnoxious, narcissist, um, who's just into him or herself, the attorney is just going to be like that. And so don't be surprised if your spouse or ex goes and gets somebody that's just an extension of them. And, you know, you start seeing stuff and you're like, oh, my God, like, what's going on here? That's That's actually... That's actually really funny that you say that, but you're right. They're probably going to go hire someone that's like them and thinks like them because that's how they're comfortable, right? Because they're going to go hire someone that they're comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, somebody who's a narcissist is not going to go hire this attorney who goes to court and gets along with everybody and says, okay, <laughs> let's see. We have an issue here. Let's just figure out how to divide up the assets and send these people on their merry way because they shouldn't be together anymore. You know, or says, or says to the other one, all right, yeah, we know our, our clients hate each other. What's what best for the kids? Like that doesn't happen with somebody who's a narcissist because they're going to go hire somebody who comes in and says, my client worked the whole time and this person sat at home and this person should not be working, should be working now. And, you know, what's their problem? And this person is a horrible parent. Oh, my God. He or she lets them watch TV all the time and and just makes up all kinds of stuff about you. Um, I'm a true believer that people get attorneys. Uh, who are extensions of themselves. And don't be surprised if this narcissist goes out and gets an attorney who is just like them and um, acts like them. And so just be prepared for that and be prepared to fight. Don't think that, you know, you're going to get anything different when you get when uh, they pick an attorney. That makes my palms sweat. Like it's just because <laughs> of the fight that you're going to have, yeah. right? The, the battle that you have ahead of you when you have a narcissist attorney and then you have your attorney and you know, then it just, just the thought of it because it can get, it can get ruthless, but you can also hire somebody who knows how to navigate through that. And, and I really feel like narcissists and even narcissists that hire attorneys that are a reflection of them, they're just very loud and obnoxious. But at the end of the day, the facts are the facts and and they have a really hard time. They, they use a lot of the same tactics in the courtroom, but really, if you have all of your documentation and you have everything lined up, it, it just helps so much better because you're like, well, yeah, you can sit here and throw your hands up and do whatever and sit, deny it all day long, but I have this text message and I have this medical record and I have this recording of you, right? Well, yeah, and that kind of one thing I should um, tell people is when you when you do go, when you do go to court and you've got a narcissist with a narcissist that's more likely has a narcissist attorney. Don't be surprised if that attorney gets up in front of the judge and just does all kinds of stuff and does this and does that. And, and you know, sometimes it turns off people because their attorney is not yelling and screaming. And they think that just because the other side is yelling and screaming, they need to be they want their attorney to be yelling and screaming. And it's not, you know, two two attorneys yelling and screaming means the judge is going to tell both of you to go pound sand. So, you know, there's a, I'm not saying that if your attorney is being walked all over that you shouldn't go talk about getting another attorney, but what's really important is 
just because your attorney's not jumping up and down and yelling and screaming like the other guy doesn't mean that you're quote unquote losing. You need to kind of, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. And when you go to court, you know, you got to pay attention to what the judge is doing, to what your attorney's doing. Cause you know, I've had, I've had cases where the other side has gone on for X period of time and I've said two words and judges are like, yeah, David is right. And it's been also the opposite. Sometimes I've gone on for a long time and I've just said everything <laughs> just, and, usually, and sometimes it's because I know I've got a bad case and I'm just trying to, you know, filibuster and talk as much as I can. Cause I don't want the other side to speak. And then the other side says something and the judge is like, uh, Mr. Youssef, you're, you're wrong. And, so it's it's a little bit more than that. It's more nuanced than that. So please, please, when you go to court, um, yes, the other side is yelling and screaming, but that doesn't mean they're winning. Really, pay attention to what's going on. It's more than that. And, and, and the thing, and for, sorry to cut you off. And the other no, thing is, you know, the law has its own language. So, um, for example, in uh, California civil cases, you file a motion, which is you're asking the court to do something, you know, a motion to do something. And in a family law court, you, you, you have an RFO, which is a request for an order. They're both the same thing, but they have their own language. So if you don't understand what's going on, don't be shy. Ask your attorney, what does all this mean? You know, what's happening here? Uh, because every kind of law, even criminal law, has its own lingo. You know, you're going to go in there and it's going to be like, we need blah, 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 according to this. And you're just going to be like, what? Well, you know, what are, what are they talking about? So it's important that if you have any questions, don't be afraid to ask. There is no dumb questions. You need to feel comfortable. It's your case, ultimately. Absolutely. I could go on for days about this because it can get so complex, right? And the, the, the terminology is is just in itself but then there's also like you have jury trials and you can have a judge try there's all of it it can get so dive down deep just depending on each case and uh but i think the biggest thing here for people is don't be afraid to call and consult an attorney right i think that you can even call and consult and most attorneys will do a consultation with you without any cost and we'll say hey let's talk for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever tell me a little bit about this and then they'll tell you what they think and if it's something a they want to take on and then they'll send you their pricing you know and so i really just encourage people to just go talk to an attorney and and start that dialogue i agree with you 100 percent. but let me add to it and say don't talk to one attorney talk to multiple attorneys you know if you can't find them talk to multiple people until you find someone that you're comfortable with and someone whose fee structure you're comfortable with because you may meet the greatest attorney and that person just may not be um, someone that you can afford. Uh, but keep talking. And if there is an attorney that you like and for whatever reason, either they say can't take your case because it's just yeah too small for us or that, per- that person is too expensive, ask them for referrals because odds are if you like the attorney, the attorney they're going to refer to is going to be someone that you like as well. You know, nice people generally hang out together, right? So yes. if, you, if, if you have an attorney that you like, they're never going to say, go to this narcissist over here because, you know, he or she is a great attorney. That rarely happens. Yep. Or you can have like a pocket ter- pocket attorney. I call you my pocket attorney. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you've never actually been my lawyer, but you've kind of been my lawyer for everything. 
<laughs> and I just, you're like on my speed down, like, Hey David, I have a question about this. I have a question about that. And even though we're not in the same state, you know how to guide me to where I can go find the answer in my own state. So thanks for, uh, thanks for that over the years, David. <laughs> my pleasure. Anytime. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I hope you come back. Cause I think this is so informative and help a ton of people. Thank you. Glad to come anytime you need me. All right. Thanks. Wow, David, thank you so much for this information. Such a huge topic. Um, going through the legal system with a narcissist can be so overwhelming. And this is really helpful information to begin to understand the different courts and just how the system works and where to begin to file a lawsuit or where to begin when um, going through the criminal process. So thank you so much. On next week's episode, I have Shawnee Silver here to talk about being single again and feeling empowered and looking at being single from a different lens. For those of you new to my podcast, you can come find me at The Divine-Self or you can come find me on YouTube at The Divine Self. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at The Divine Self. Until next time, have a good evening.